0: Uh, good morning. Our reading this morning comes from John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. Please stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. World, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Good
1: morning. Good morning. morning. Um, before we dive into prayer, uh, just a quick tidbit about the Jonah class that we're going to be doing. Um, so, It'll be off and on for the next five weeks, and it's just a—it's more of a Bible study. So we're going to go over an inductive Bible study tool for how you can kind of read the Bible on your own and talk with people, and then we're literally, as a class, just discussing Jonah one, two, three, and four um, over the course of the four weeks. Uh, so we invite you to that. That'll start at 9 a.m. next week in the room directly parallel to this one. Um, all right, so let's pray. Um, Father, we are thankful to be here um, on this Resurrection Sunday where we celebrate the Lord Jesus, we celebrate His work, we celebrate His words, we celebrate what He has done for us and what You have done for us. Um, We ask that Your Spirit would fill us, that You would open our eyes to see, You would open our ears to hear. You would open our hearts to believe what you have for us today from John 16. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might imagine a man in a mysterious cloak with his head and his face hidden. He's probably outside in a really foggy background where you can't see anything going on. You might imagine this. And this man, he reaches into his cloak and he pulls out a stopwatch because he's old-fashioned. And he starts dangling it before you, and as it slows down, you can actually read the time. And it reads 3 p.m. You note that the actual time, because you pull out your your watch or you pull out your smartphone, you note that the actual time is 1 p.m., um, and you're like, okay, what's going on? This man then describes to you that at 3 p.m., you will have clarity in your life. You will have a dramatic increase in relational love in your life. And finally, you will witness an out-of-this-world indescribable glory. Sounds pretty good, you start thinking to yourself, is it 3 p.m., this glory that he's talking about. You again, you look at your watch, it's now 1.45 p.m., you wish time could go faster. The man recognizes your anxiety and he says, what's the matter, son? And you reply, I wish I could skip from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. He then replies, oh no, that is not how it works. You cannot get to 3 p.m. without going through 2 p.m. The man then pulls out, out of his cloak, a second pocket watch because he's tremendously old-fashioned. And this pocket watch reads 2 p.m. In this hour, he describes, your fickle weakness of faith will be exposed. You will also abandon your greatest love. At this, you forgot all about the promise of 3 p.m. of glory, and you cry out, "Can I not just skip this hour and just have 3 p.m.?" And he says again, "Oh no, son, that's not how it works. You cannot get to 3 p.m. without going through 2 p.m. Behold the two hours of Christ." In our text, we have nearly arrived. We are on the precipice, and climb 17. We're literally ending 16. It's Jesus' last part of the discourse. And then 17 is all prayer. Our text today works rather well with Pastor David's text from last week, which was verses 16 through 24. In last week's text, Jesus proceeds from crucifixion to resurrection. In our text today, Jesus begins with resurrection and proceeds to crucifixion. The two texts work rather naturally together. Part one of David's text Crucifixion matches the end of our text today, which is also on the crucifixion. Part two of David's text last week, resurrection, matches rather well with the introduction of our text today, which is also resurrection. One of the purposes for why John has structured the end of 16 this way is that the hope of the resurrection is the heart of faith. And it's the thing that allows us to get through the crucifixion. We acknowledge the resurrection of the dead, right? The Nicene Creed puts it this way at the very end of the statement. We acknowledge the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, amen. So our two parts of the text, they they hinge around this word, hour, H-O-U-R. So look at verse 25. Jesus speaks of an hour when he will reveal the Father plainly to his disciples. This is the hour of resurrection. In verse 32, Jesus speaks of another hour, he will uh, an hour in which he will be crucified and ultimately abandoned by his disciples. He is dangling two stopwatches or two uh, pocket watches before our faces, as we might say. So today we will speak of the peaceful hour of Christ's resurrection and the worldly hour of Christ's crucifixion. In the hour of resurrection, we'll see a promise of clarity, a promise of relationship, a promise of glory. But before that hour, we'll be faced with the hour of crucifixion, where we'll be confronted with the fickleness of our faith and ultimate abandonment of Jesus. And then we'll conclude with one final promise from Christ in verse 33. So the first kind of point with subpoints we're gonna look at is the peaceful hour of Christ's resurrection. And this comes from verses 25 through 28. Uh, this is the pocket watch that reads 3 p.m. In this section, we find promises of clarity, promises of relationship, and promises of ascension. So, first, our subpoint here clarity comes after the resurrection. So, let's read verse 25 together. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father, end quote. So the first thing I wanna look at is that that word said. It is in the perfect tense. This is a past action that has present implications. So the things that Jesus has said in the past are still things in the present having uh, implications for the disciples. Another way of saying that is, the unclear, figurative speeches that Jesus has made in the past are still unclear and are still very figurative in the eyes of the disciples in the present that he is currently uh, speaking about. So what are the these things? Um, a few weeks ago, Pastor John actually threw up a picture of like a pyramid, which was pretty cool, where he talked about the different levels, referring to what Jesus has just said in chapter 16 these things could also be referring to everything Jesus has said in the upper room discourse, 13 through 16, or that these things could be referring to everything Jesus has said to his disciples in the entire book of John. All of those uh, are technical, logical options for these things, But but I'm gonna argue that these things particularly refer to what Jesus has said in the upper room discourse so if we look at chapters thirteen through sixteen, the phrase "these things" comes up a number of times. It comes up in chapter thirteen, verse seventeen. It comes up again in thirteen twenty-one. It comes up again in fourteen twenty-five. Again, it comes up in fifteen verse eleven and fifteen verse seventeen. And then it comes up a few times in chapter sixteen. And so these things are scattered throughout the upper room discourse. And so ultimately, this seems to be what Jesus is referring to or what the disciples are referring to as figures of speech. These things refer to Jesus' words to his disciples in the upper room discourse with perhaps a particular emphasis on chapter 13. Why do I say that? In chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and he talks about and explains to them you are a servant, you should do what your Lord does. If your Lord washes your feet, you as a servant should also wash one another's feet. Jesus then makes reference to this all throughout the Upper Room Discourse and applying that principle to other things. And so again, these things are what Jesus is saying to his disciples. So what does the word figures of speech mean? Uh, in, in the, in, behind it in the Greek word, It's the word for parables or proverbs. But that, you know, that okay, what does that mean? Is Jesus telling parables? Is he telling proverbs? None of his speeches seem to be parabolic. None of them seem to be proverbial. So what's going on here? Look at what it's contrasted with. Figures of speech is contrasted with the word plainly. And so very much easy enough. Figures of speech simply just refers to obscurity of words. Jesus is saying something. It's not plain to the people that are listening. They don't understand what he's saying. That's what's going on here. So let's ask this question. Why would Jesus teach in a way that his disciples couldn't understand? Why would Jesus teach his disciples in a way that that they couldn't understand or they seem to be having a hard time with? The answer is Jesus is actually sowing in his disciples seeds That will become clear and will grow after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is a master teacher. He is the Lord of words. He is the good shepherd who speaks exactly what we need for the past, long for in the present, and can't even fathom in the future. Do you hear the voice of Jesus? And when you read the words of Christ, do you find sometimes that they are confusing? Do you not understand his current words? To you, perhaps, therefore, your future. Trust the shepherd. I say shepherd, you know, I'm getting the shepherd imagery from the text itself. Again, let's look at that word figures of speech. If you flip your Bible back a couple of pages to John chapter 10, you'll see the only other spot in John where figures of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying them. In John 10, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. That's the figures of speech that the disciples, they don't understand. And so Jesus is saying those things without them understanding. But yet this text promises something. It promises clarity, not misunderstanding. So look at the very next part of 25 The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now to be clear here, the hour Jesus is speaking of is more, it's more than just the resurrection, it's more of an age. It's the resurrection, it includes the ascension of Jesus to the Father, his return, it also includes him sending the Spirit down to his disciples But basically what Jesus is saying, after I am resurrected, there will be clarity that comes with my words. And so we see this. I'll give one kind of really most famous example probably of this. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. There's two disciples walking down a road. Jesus had just been crucified. Jesus then has resurrected. He meets them. They don't recognize him. He then speaks to them from Scripture about the Christ that he had to be crucified, that he then had to be resurrected. He then breaks bread with them and at that moment, they recognize him and then he leaves, right? And then they say something like this, when he did our hearts not burn when he spoke of himself from the scriptures. Clarity comes immediately after the resurrection. But again, this doesn't just refer to the resurrection, it refers to his ascension it also includes the Holy Spirit to be given. Clarity comes when the Spirit is given to the church. Um, So receive this promise for yourselves, Remedy. Hear this truth that the Spirit will teach you the meaning of Jesus' words. He brings clarity to our Savior's words. And by the way, it's not that Jesus was being unclear. There's something else mucking up the clarity of the words and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Jesus speaks plainly to us now of the Father and to now the Father we're gonna turn. So the second one, the second promise that comes out of this text is relationship. Relationship comes after the resurrection and this is coming from verses 26 through 27. John writes this, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God, end quote. Verse 26 is a bit confusing and, and alarming. If you if you, you kind of read it quickly and you're like, you kind of do a double take. It reads as if we begin praying in Jesus' name after his resurrection, his ascension, Right? We're praying in Jesus' name. And that makes sense. That's pretty normal. We should pray in Jesus' name. But then Jesus says this I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And you're like, wait a minute. I'm praying in Jesus' name. And Jesus' is like, yeah, and I'm not going to bring that stuff to the Father. <laughs> uh, Jesus won't go to the Father. You will find an entire chapter of Jesus going to the Father on our behalf in the high priestly prayer of John 17. But that was before the resurrection. This is referring to after the resurrection. Well, we can go elsewhere in scripture and see that even now, Jesus as a man seated at the right hand of the father is making intercession for us on our behalf. Romans 8, 34, Hebrews 7, 25 are two places you could turn to for that. So what does Jesus mean here? What's he trying to say uh, with this kind of rather alarming uh, piece of imagery. Imagine as a disciple of Jesus, Jesus invites you to his house and you walk into his house and he says, over here's my room. This is where I work and this is where I sleep and all that stuff. And you walk into Jesus's room and you see your picture in a frame, you know, the classic cliche, it's your picture in a frame on his desk, right? And you see little pictures that you had drawn in your immaturity and little writings that you had squabbled in your immaturity, and they're hung up all around on the walls. And you're immediately filled with this sense of Jesus loves me. He's loved me all the way from immaturity, all the way to where I am, and I can... My Father's room, it's over here. And you're like, you'd heard about the Father. You don't really know the Father that much. You don't don't know if the Father loves you quite as much as Jesus. And Jesus is like, come over here. And he opens this door and he walk into this door of the father's room and the room is full of the very same pictures and drawings and writings. And you realize to yourself, the father loves me just as much as Jesus loves me. Look at verse 27 again, the first part of it. For the father himself loves you. Repeat that with me. For the Father Himself loves you. The effect of 26 and 27 is that Jesus doesn't even need to go to the Father on your behalf because the Father is already on your behalf. That's what's going on there. John 3:16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent The sending of Christ, the coming of Christ into the world was nothing other than a result of the Father's love. The Father himself loves you. The end of verse 27 that states, the Father loves us because we love Christ and have believed that he came from God. Now, we've done this a couple of times in John. This is not to say that our love and our faith earns the Father's love, because the world that he sent Jesus to was a broken, sinful world that did not love the Father. God's love comes first, but the reason for this is, is our love, the reason our love and our faith is mentioned here, our love and faith is not of ourselves, but it actually comes from the Father, and we'll see that a little bit later, uh, more on that later. Calvin writes this kind of in summary of 27. We have the heart of God as soon as we place before him the name of his son. The asking, this asking of God in the name of Christ and God's willingness to answer prayers is scattered throughout the entire upper room discourse. Prayer is a big thing. We see it in 14 verses 13 through 14. We see it again in chapter 15, verse 7 and 16, and we see it again in chapter 16 and 23 and then also in our text. We see it no more clearly than again, if you flip over one page, Jesus is with his disciples, praying for his disciples for the entire chapter 17. So here's a little interesting um, thought. Uh, The two asks, so look again at our text. The two asks here are actually different words. They're not the same word behind them. The ask referring to the disciples asking um, Uh, the Father in Jesus' name, this is scattered throughout the Upper Room Discourse, like we just said. But the ask that Jesus says here, I will not ask the Father, this is actually only used in the next chapter in 17 of all the different times where Jesus asks the Father. 17 verse 9, twice, verse 15, and also verse 20, where Jesus is asking the Father on our behalf. By the way, 17 is one of the top two greatest corporate prayer sessions of all time 17 and then I would throw Pentecost up there as is another top two and I did want to take this opportunity specifically to talk about prayer because prayer has been scattered throughout the entire upper room discourse um, and I want to speak directly to us as a church um, because of Jesus's emphasis on prayer um, the elders in our vision that we kind of cast we type We stated the desire to increase our corporate prayer uh, times from monthly to weekly. I would say we're now about a half year, not quite a half year, but we're we're close to a half a year of switching over to weekly prayer. And the average attendance of corporate prayer has been about eight. Now, this is not me saying condemnation, feel it. That's not what I'm trying to say here. THERE ARE MANY REASONS FOR WHY PEOPLE, PERHAPS, ARE NOT ATTENDING PRAYER, uh, SCHEDULE REASONS, WHATNOT. THERE'S ALL KINDS OF REASONS. I JUST WANTED TO MENTION THIS. WE'RE GOING TO SEND OUT A SURVEY IN THE NEXT COUPLE OF WEEKS uh, THAT IS GOING TO GO OUT ON GOOGLE FORMS, AND IT JUST ASKS A COUPLE OF QUESTIONS ABOUT CORPORATE PRAYER. AND THIS IS FOR THE SAKE THAT WE CAN GATHER INFORMATION SO THAT WE CAN MORE WISELY PLAN OUT CORPORATE PRAYER, THE TIMING OF IT AND ALL THOSE THINGS. BUT ALSO, WE WANT TO HEAR FROM YOU KIND OF WHAT YOUR NEEDS ARE IN PRAYER. However, I do want to put this in front of you. If there's not a good reason to not be at corporate prayer, I want to strongly encourage you to make sacrifice to be there. Right? When we pray together, we know God answers. When we pray together, we know God hears. When we pray together, it helps us to know one another and to know how to love each other uh, well. And on the precipice of Jesus' crucifixion, the thing that he does next is he prays with disciples, for his disciples. And just like Jesus, we need to pray with disciples and for disciples. So let me encourage you just to make sacrifices for that and also fill that um, survey out so that we can better plan it um, as well to meet the most people's uh, schedule needs. Um, All right, our third and final uh, promise from this hour after the resurrection concerns ascension. Ascension comes after... The resurrection and this is verse 28 says this I came from the father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the father so before transitioning to this the second hour that that he's about to talk to right 2 p.m. instead of 3 p.m. Jesus gives a very neat summary of both of those hours or another way of saying this he summarizes his entire earthly ministry In verse 28, he came from the Father into the world. He's now leaving the world and going back to the Father. Again, reminding us when his coming from the Father, the Father Himself loves us. He sent Christ. Where did he send Christ? He sent Christ into the world. Now, I do a weird thing. I read a bunch of old dead guys all the time. And In the early church, particularly the first 600 years, almost every one of the church fathers that I read, when they got to this part of God leaving the Father and going into into the planet Earth, right, they started saying things like, this is about the eternal generation of the Son, that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten of the Father. And I'm sitting here like, I'm scratching my head and I'm like, Doesn't like him leaving God and him going back to God, that refers to the incarnation and the ascension, not not as like, you know, his nature as God. But then I was like, in God's word, starting to talk about Jesus in that sense. And here's a question that we can ask. Who was Jesus before he came from the Father into the world? Doesn't the text imply that he was still around? He didn't just come into existence. God sent him. Martin Luther actually said this this way, and he's basing it off of this text. Um, Christ's going or being sent from the Father means nothing else than that he, the true Son of God from eternity, became a true man and revealed himself on earth in human nature, essence, and form. That he himself was seen. Heard and touched that he ate, drank, slept, worked, suffered, and died like any other human being. So, Jesus, God the Son, the only begotten of the Father, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. We did an exercise in one of my classes. I teach. History and so church history comes into it. Uh, We're in first three centuries of Rome, so church history really comes into it because Constantine and all that. Um, And one of the exercises was, hey, students, what's the most important part of the gospel? There's low-hanging fruit there. Well, obviously, the crucifixion, because we all wear crosses everywhere, or maybe it's the resurrection. Those are two kind of low-hanging fruit pieces that a lot of people ended up saying, oh yeah, it's the crucifixion or it's the resurrection. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus was raised so that we too may have life everlasting. But one of my students took a more ancient church, dead old guy route, and he said this, the incarnation, and that's exactly what I was looking for from him. So he, he passed, everyone else failed. I asked him, why did you say the incarnation? And this is what he said, because without it, the crucifixion and resurrection wouldn't have happened and would have meant nothing. The crucifixion is infused with value. The resurrection is infused with value because of the person who was crucified and because of the person who was resurrected. And that person wasn't just a man, that person was God the Son, second person of the Trinity. If God the Son didn't become man, the death and resurrection would have no value. Jesus then concludes with the other side of the coin. He came from God. He came into the world. Now he is leaving the world and he's going back to God. Here again, the truth that Jesus became a man brings great value and dear preciousness to not just his coming, but his also leaving. He's going back to the father and coming to earth as a man. He makes the father visible to us. In returning to the Father as a man, he makes us visible to the Father. Now no longer do we just have God the Son with the Father according to his divine nature, but we have God the Son sitting at the right hand of God the Father forever as a man, sharing our very human nature, making petitions on behalf of us to the Father Uh, Another dead old guy, Beattie, um, he's a church father. He said this, he left the world behind and returned to the Father because by his ascension, he brought the humanity that he had put on to the place of invisible realities. The Father's love for Jesus is now the very love he shares with us by becoming a man. The Father himself loves you. And because he came from heaven and returned, we too can be from heaven and return. Because he died and was raised, we too now can die and be raised to eternal life. If only we could just skip to 3 p.m., right? Uh, But we have to go through 2 p.m. And so we're going to turn to the second hour. The worldly hour of Christ's crucifixion. And this is the second half of our text, 29 through 33. Verses 29 through 33 is the pocket watch that read 2 p.m. And here we're confronted with necessary truth for us to grasp if we are to properly get help from Jesus. We need to come to the truth that we ourselves are fickle in faith and that we are prone to abandon the one who loves us. Uh, This is called total depravity. This is, uh, an analogy for this is as salt Fills every ounce of water in the ocean. So does fickleness, weakness, and sin fill the ocean of our intentions, words, thoughts, and actions, every single one that we've ever taken. We're confronted with this awful truth about ourselves so that we can receive help from Christ. If we want resurrection, we must first be crucified. If we want life, we must die to ourselves. So, the first part that Jesus is focusing on here is that fickle faith comes before the crucifixion. And this should be subpoint A under two. Fickle faith comes before the crucifixion. John writes this in 29 through 31. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? End quote. So the disciples start off by echoing verse 25. They use the word plainly and they use the word figurative language. They're they're echoing it. And they're also echoing verse 27. They believe now to hear Perhaps it's from God. So they're echoing what they think Jesus wants them to hear. Perhaps it's telling that they don't mention really love for Christ, but we'll we'll leave that aside. So before delving into what's going on here, I want to share something that was kind of important for me to read this text. Because, again, we're talking about our nature apart from God, and that's not a happy thing. We're totally depraved. We can't receive help from God within ourselves, right? So I I wanted you to see something here. Don't skip over the word his. So go back, look at the very first word, his. (laughs) It's comforting comforting to me to know that John, in light of what the disciples are about to do, they're about to abandon Jesus, he still says of the disciples, they are his disciples. We belong to Jesus, that's what's gonna carry us through the 2 p.m. hour. So what's going on in this passage? What's going on in this little chunk of text? The disciples are trying to skip over something. Jesus is being refer- has been referring to his resurrection and ascension, and they have drastically misunderstood. They do not seem to understand that a resurrection requires a death, that before you can be raised to life, you have to actually die, and in this case, a gruesome death on a cross. They skip right through that, thinking Jesus is now at the hour that he had promised clarity, relationship, and glory. Look at this word, ah. I mean, that's just a beautiful word. They go, ah, now we know, right? That's, you know you're in trouble when it starts with ah. Uh, in, In Greek, that's the word behold, which sounds even worse. Behold, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. We have arrived at this hour you were just speaking about, this hour of resurrection return. We understand now, Jesus, we're where you said we will be. D.A. Carson, it's not necessarily overly helpful at bringing um, allusion to this text, but it's a great quote, and it explains kind of what's going on here. No misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. So what are they saying there? The disciples are like, aha, we no longer misunderstand. So their misunderstanding has gone to a whole nother level because now they think they understand even though they misunderstand. And so let's keep looking at this. Verse 30, Jesus then speaks of this quote unquote, new found faith that Jesus has come from God. We know that you're from God because you know all things and have no need of anyone to ask questions. And then Jesus' answer is telling. He uses the power of a rhetorical question. Do you now believe? Right. That that pretty much answered. He's like, eh, you're not there yet. Do you now believe? The effect is, oh, so you think you have arrived to 3 p.m. Let me now talk to you about 2 p.m. You think you have arrived to life. Let me now talk to you about my death. Their faith was in a Savior who knows all things, but not in a Savior who must go to a cross and die. Theirs was a crossless Christianity. Their understanding of Jesus being Messiah was still askew. Now Jesus will tell them just how much their crossless faith is worth. It will ultimately lead them to abandon Jesus. So for help, let's... Let's kind of summarize what we mean by depravity, total depravity. So I'm gonna ask the children to help me with some of the question and answers from the catechism. So children, I've got two questions. Question 13. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Sin. Oh. I was wondering if you're gonna add the last phrase. Yeah. Since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, and then we add except Jesus because technically that's true. Jesus was a human. He kept the law perfectly. All right, question 14. Did God create us unable to keep his law? No, but because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin and guilt, unable to keep God's law. This is who we are left to ourselves. We're unable to keep God's law. Because within ourselves, we have sinned against God and we have no more the ability to keep it. And so we need help outside of ourselves. Jesus goes to the next. You know, if if it's already bad that we're unable to help ourselves, he's going to the next further, uh, you know, the, the cavern under the cavern here in verse 32. And this is our second point. Abandonment comes before coming. So verse 32, Jesus answers them, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own house and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the father is with me. So remember back to 25 and 29, the use of figures of speech, right? That word, we talked about that word only showing up in John 10, right? And that gives us our shepherd language. He's the door of the sheep, He's the good shepherd. That's the last time kind of they misunderstood figures of speech. Well, there's a reason why John wants shepherd imagery to trickle down through this passage. It started in the first half, but here Jesus is now alluding to another shepherd passage. He alludes here to Zechariah 13, verse 7, kind of the second half of it, which says this, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Matthew 26, 31 through 35 is a parallel passage here. It gives us even, even more kind of insight as to what's going on in the inner workings of the disciples. It says this, Jesus said to them, you all will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Again, Zechariah. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered them, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I I tell you this night, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And yet Jesus says, I will be struck and you will all scatter. That's about how much a crossless faith is worth. Nothing. Note the implicit teaching here. True faith comes from above. Note the difference between the disciples here. Jesus dies and they scatter. They run for their lives. They run out of fear. They deny him. Note that and contrast that with the disciples just 40 or so days later, after the Holy Spirit comes and they preach Christ, crucified and resurrected to them, not afraid to deny or or not afraid to die, and celebrating that they had been beaten for Christ. What's the difference there? One was a faith that was rooted in self and could not help itself. The other was a God-given, spirit-filled faith that came from above. Jesus summarizes the end of this crossless faith as the disciples leaving Jesus, which he quite literally says, leave me alone. They will leave me alone. A crossless faith is a faith that is overcome by the fear of man. At the first sign of trouble, suffering, danger, it will turn and it will flee in fear. A crossless faith will receive pain from a church and flee it immediately. Brothers and sisters, as we continue to walk through loving one another as a church. As we continue, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I can speak for myself. I'm, I've probably hurt most people in this room by being a sinner at some point in time or another. And I can say that maybe some of you have hurt me too in, in the midst of sin. We have hurt each other, right? That's part of, as a church, when we receive hurt from one another, we need to know this, Jesus first was hurt by the church. And what did Jesus do for the church when the church abandoned him? He went to the cross and he died for them. I want to take this principle from the Upper Room Discourse back in 13. Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his Lord. Now he applied it to washing each other's feet, loving each other, serving each other. Later on, he's going to apply it to receiving persecution from the world, right? Jesus was persecuted for the world. If I follow Jesus, I too will be persecuted from the world, I now wanna be a little bit bold and I wanna apply it here as well. Jesus was abandoned by the church, Jesus was hurt by the church, Jesus died and loved the church. Jesus was misunderstood and abandoned by those who were part of his church, his disciples. He loved them and he died for them. He's an example for us here, but his death is more than an example. It's something that atones for our sins, something that we can't do for one another. And this brings us to our last promise. Peace and victory comes out from the crucifixion. And this is verse 33. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So in concluding our text, the entire upper room discourse, minus the corporate prayer session that Jesus is going to have in 17, Jesus gives us two places to be and one promise to keep us going. After verse 32, 33 comes very unexpected. Jesus is like, your your faith is fickle. You still are in misunderstanding. You're about to abandon me. Oh, and by the way, I promise you peace and victory. What's going on there? You get this idea that the disciples will scatter from Jesus because he's struck dead, right? And then all of a sudden he's promising peace to him. So Jesus gives us two places to be and one promise to keep us going. Uh, Let me skip the side note, actually. So he begins to speak peace and beyond peace, victory. So let's look at the first, let's look at the two places. Look at the text in 33. In me in the world. In me, in the world. So there's the two places. In Jesus, the disciples are promised peace. In the world, the disciples are promised afflictions, trials, tribulations. And this kind of sets up a paradox. Christians have peace in Christ, but are always troubled in the world. This is our cross that we must bear until Christ returns. We suffer in this world as we pursue the teachings and commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what does peace mean here? Because how can you be troubled but also at peace, right? What does peace mean here? Well, let's ask this question. What is contrasted or compared to the world in our text? Look at verse 28 again. In verse 28, Jesus comes from the Father And he goes into the world. And then he leaves the world to go back to the Father. So what's contrasted is the Father. So who will we have peace with? We will have peace with God, the Father. That's the peace that is promised in Christ. He's not promising that your time in the world will be peaceful. He's promising that your relationship with God will be at peace. You will be reconciled you will be brought back to God. Well, where do we get that from? So let me, we could preach the gospel here uh, from really anywhere in scripture and it would apply, but I wanna go into Zechariah because Jesus just quoted Zechariah 13, seven. So I'm gonna go into Zechariah 12, verse 10 through 13, one, which is some of the context for Jesus' quoting of Zechariah 13, seven. So this is what Zechariah says, and I will pour out, On the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So here we have a description of the crucifixion, and then we have a description of the mourning of the land. Verses 11. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadarimim in the place of Megiddo. That's talking about Josiah's death, one of the great kings. The land shall mourn each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by themselves, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. And then on 13.1 it says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. They will look on him whom they have pierced. This is a response of God giving grace and mercy to people. And who was pierced but him who was crucified and had a spear plunged into his dead heart. Truly he was the firstborn that these are prophesied to weep over. And on that day, the day of crucifixion, there's a fountain opened up for the house of David to cleanse them from sin, The shepherd was struck on the cross and pierced and out of his side flowed blood and water, a fountain to wash the very people who pierced him of their sins. And Jesus says, in me, you may have peace. This is what he means. But not only do we have peace here, he goes to a precious promise as well. Look at the very last words of the upper room discourse. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Bruce Milne, commentator, says it this way. In the end, he can say this word and only he. The victory is wholly his. At the end, the triumph song is not we have overcome, but worthy is the lamb who was slain. And how did Jesus overcome the world? On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And so let's conclude with this. Are you struggling in the world with trials, tribulations, afflictions, sufferings? Are you struggling with your flesh to kill sin? Here, that has present day effect. I have overcome the world. Dear believer, suffering with sickness, hear the words of Christ. I have overcome the world. Dear believer fed or, or filled with bitterness to, to, towards someone, hear the words of Christ. I have overcome the world. Dear believer, struggling with lust and purity, Christ has overcome the world. Dear believer, who has anger in your heart, Christ has overcome the world. Believer, maybe you're struggling with unbelief and doubt. Christ has has overcome the world. Maybe you're feeling alone. Maybe you're feeling abandoned by your family or your friends. Christ has overcome the world. Maybe you're struggling with finding purpose in your job. Christ has overcome the world. Dear husband or wife, maybe you're struggling to love your spouse well. Christ has overcome the world. Dear parents, maybe you're struggling with patience and gentleness towards your children. Christ has overcome the world. Whatever our sin, our weakness, our hurt might be, bring it to the fountain and wash it away in the wounds of Christ. Quit the crossless faith. Don't try to skip 2 p.m. to get to 3 p.m. Go to the cross and hear Christ proclaim through the resurrection, I have overcome the world. And now we're going to end as Jesus ends the upper room discourse in chapter 17 with what Bruce Milney called the holy work of prayer. Let's pray. Father, um, every time I get up here, I cannot do justice to you. I cannot do justice to the gospel, to the glories that flow from you and flow freely to us from Christ. I pray that you would cover my weakness, the weakness of my words, the fickleness of my faith, the proneness of my own soul to seek refuge in another. Father, I pray that you would cover that for us as well as we receive words. Make your word powerful. Let your spirit come into our hearts and take these words and just engrave them into our hearts. Let us seek peace. In Christ, and let us know that we have ultimate victory over the world because of Christ's victory. Lord, I pray that we would come to the fountain that's been opened for us every single day, that anytime we find weakness, anytime we find sinfulness, anytime we find a hint of ourselves depending upon ourselves or something other than Christ, that we would fly to the fountain and wash ourselves anew in the blood of Christ. We are thankful that Jesus loves us and Father, we are thankful that you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna invite...